Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Hey, Jono. How are you? Welcome back. We are back, and uh, I'm a little a tingle. I'm a little excited. This is uh, episode 123. This is uh, what chapter you suppose that would be? I would think it's if I've done the math, chapter twenty-two. We're we're. I think this could be it. This is the end. This is the the last chapter of the ambitious card, which is kind of amazing that we've gone all the way through the book. It's been fun listening to you read it again. I will uh, once again say the reason there are audiobooks in the I Mark series because Jim Cunningham turned to me as we were driving in his uh, large vehicle uh, toward Forest City, Iowa, and said, "You know, you, we could produce." Uh, audiobooks on our own now. That's possible to do. And you totally opened the door to that and made that happen. Anyway, so we are really fast approaching the end of season one. Uh, There's one more episode after this one, but in just looking back, I'm just both uh, Mr. Webster happy. I'm both shocked and surprised at the people who said yes uh, to talk to us, you know, of course, starting with Dick Cavett, which was, uh, as they say in the biz, an amazing get. And he was uh, so charming and fun. I was thinking back on other episodes that I, I found particularly uh, fun or uh, meaningful. Not that they all weren't fun, but some stand out a little bit more. Uh, Jay Johnson telling us stories about his friend, Harry Anderson, still touches me. The Carissa Hendricks episode. Uh, Mind blowing. Yeah. Mind blowing. That one quote from her uh, interview about comedy and magic uh, coming, the fuel from that coming from the same source, mind blowing for me. I've been thinking about it constantly. It's and just filtering it into other stuff. It's, it was, this has been, I don't know about you, but I've had a blast talking to this level of performer, David Regal for the love of Pete, somebody I've admired greatly for low these many years, John Carney, yeah. Who I absolutely worship. And then people that I that I actually know that I love, Derek and, and Nick, talking to Derek Hughes and Nick DeFat, just so much fun. And uh, as I look at uh, all of the people that I didn't know, perhaps the most fun I've had, you know, outside of our circle would be Jeff Altman. Boy, did I laugh. Well, that was just if if you if folks, if you're listening on a kind of intermittent basis, uh, popping in and out because you're not really following the story. If you haven't listened to the Jeff Altman episode, uh, go back and do that because he is one funny guy and so charming. And uh, what a great story about a guy who shifted careers and is now kind of shifting back into magic in his retirement. Uh, Well worth listening to. Another one that stood out for me just because I've known of his work for years. And unfortunately, Jim, you weren't on the call, but Wayne Fetterman, stand-up comedian, Wayne Fetterman, who is a a stand-up comedy historian, just fascinating to hear the history of stand-up comedy and also, you know, stuff that didn't make it in to the interview just because it was a little bit of inside baseball, but, you know, stuff that I knew about certain comics like Murray Roman, who he kind of knew about, but didn't, and being able to share stuff like that with him was anyway, just fantastic. I enjoyed listening to that one, even though I did not participate in the interview, really all of them have been so much fun and I'm so blessed and lucky again uh, to be a part of this venture and get a chance to chat with largely my heroes in this business. And uh, it's just been so much fun. So, so much fun. We have a a couple, uh, three returning heroes today. One of the primary characters in the ambitious card uh, is a man in his early thirties who becomes interested in performing magic at what is, uh, I would say, compared to most magicians, 
uh, relatively late age. Uh, so to go along with this final chapter of the Ambitious Card, uh, we asked three past interviewees to come back and talk about what it's like to come to Magic Late in life. Uh, one of them is Rob Zabrecki, uh, who is also our first guest uh, ever, and then uh, Morgan and West, who uh, we just love. Morgan and West, uh, uh, again, you weren't on these interviews. I don't know what happened to you. Early on, you were busy. Early on, you were quite busy. Oh, I, I just thought it was interesting that you would pick things I was not involved with here. But no, it's uh, I coincidence. Don't, Total is it? Is it really? Well, is it, is it, uh, <laughs> I'll leave that for the listeners to determine. Yeah. Anyway, Morgan and West were both essentially high school teachers, and Rob Zabrecki was in the punk band Possum Dixon. He's told the story on many other podcasts, so we sort of uh, uh, abridged it a little bit here. But as his band was breaking up, as he told us, he was looking for another artistic outlet, and magic, well, magic sort of found him. I understand you got started relatively late in life, late 20s, early 30s in the world of magic, which is rare. Most magicians, you know, get a a magic kit from someone at age eight or nine. So how did it come about that you stepped into magic first? How how did that happen? Well, completely on accident is, is the first sort of part of the equation. And the second part is underneath that accident, I, I did have this burning desire to reinvent myself. Um, as a as a creative performer, so it was kind of where where luck meets opportunity. It was that sort of you know that that weird you know cross that that the intersection that happens maybe once or twice in life if you're lucky, if you're mm-hmm. extremely lucky. And for me, it was a burning hot day in Baltimore, Maryland, when I was playing with my old rock group. You know, my my first um, dream was being a musician. I was a little kid, right? Where you know people were playing with magic kits. I had a tennis racket in my hand. I was jumping around to cheap trick and kiss records and stuff like that. So I was fulfilling that dream in my twenties. And um, I was walking around after a sound check in Baltimore sightseeing. And there's a, there's an air conditioner because it's so hot out. I got a duck in this place and it was a magic shop. So in a nutshell, walking in there was transformative for, for different reasons. And it really kind of like going there led to a, a number of events that, that led me to, you know, eventually going to the Magic Castle a few months later and falling, really falling deep into magic as a subculture, as an art form, and as a, as really as a new way of life and a new, a, a new sort of like, it's going to sound crazy, but a, a career path after, even after four or five months going, I, I don't want to do this. I have to do this. It was just, a, it was like a magnet. It was very strange. So now that you've been doing that for a few years, are, what advantages do you see to coming at magic late in life? Well, I mean, I can only talk from my experience, which is, you know, as mentioned, I came from a rock background. I did not come from not coming from a magic background at all. I mean, if anything, I had an aversion to magic. Quick backstory, when I was, you know, seven, eight years old, uh, Ronald McDonald came to my elementary school to tell us about the, the pros and cons of eating healthy food like McDonald's. Uh, and brought me on stage, this embarrassed little kid, and poured evaporated milk in my head and made me feel really embarrassed and sort of ashamed to be alive. It was terrible. That was my experience with magic and sent back to my seat. I forgot all about it. Tried to forget all about it. So I came to magic from a background of, of being a musician. So I did understand an art form, so to speak. I understood timing and rhythm uh, working with a band, being on stage, having the lights hit my face, 
knowing to show up to the gig and do it. <laughs> Not always in the best state of mind at that point, but like I, I got it. I got show. I got you know showbiz, so to speak. So I, that was that was ingrained. But I came at it with a, a more of a, a a punk ethos, I would say. Of like I was thinking for myself. I wasn't you know there, I wasn't sort of in a box that other magicians have where they every, everything can and sometimes is often very regimented of you know how magicians work and the way that they work. And so I came at it from a very different background um, and also love of all of the arts and that, that goes for visual arts, um, all kinds of music, you know, dance, architecture, everything. I, I really came at it with all these different influences. So by the time I got there, I'm like, yeah, I'll make a magic show. And what I'll do is I'll, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll my girlfriend and I will we'll dress ourselves like 1920s ghoulish characters, we'll pour on a bunch of makeup We'll get cool looking old props. We'll make it like a silent film. We'll get super cool Nina Rota music. We did the Fellini soundtracks and Angela Badalamente, which we had like a, a knowledge of just a lot of magicians. I won't, I won't say that all of them don't have that, but like they don't pull from those resources. They go, mm -hmm. oh, I need music. I'll just get some stock music from this. And oh, this will be fine. And I'll just put on this. This is where the magicians were. So I'll throw on this jacket. And you know, there was a almost a template and I didn't use any of those templates. I was like, oh, I see, I saw it as an art form. So I was able to, you know, pull in my influences from all these different places. And that in turn gave, gave me a, a, a unique uh, point of view and a way to sort of like take a stab at, you know, being somebody in the art form. And what was the hardest part for you at that point about it, with magic, with learning magic and making that transition? Well, the hardest part when you come to magic when you're 27 is, you see all the other magicians who have a, an understanding of like magic of let's, so in magic, there's a, there's a set of books called Tarbell, the Tarbell set of books. It's a, it's a great collection of, of close-up stage and parlor magic um, produced by, by a man called Harlan Tarbell, who it was like a mail order service originally. You would, you could learn trick by trick how to do everything in magic. And most magicians have a pretty good knowledge of how card tricks work and how stage illusions work and how mind reading works. It's, it's, there's a lot of, you're talking, you know, decades of, of research and development. So they, all the other, you know, they, they've got like an encyclopedia. Most any magician I would say worth his weight would have a pretty strong concept of all these types of magic. Well, you show up when you're 27 and you go, how am I ever gonna catch up with these guys? And the answer is you're not. And how am I ever going to learn about the history of magic that they've been learning since they were little kids? You can, you know, if you do have a burning desire like I did, you cram and you become obsessed with it. And you wake up reading about it and you, and you practice as much as, you know, the other guys. It's different. You know, you, you come to it with it, that different thing. And, and I think that is, um, was the main thing is knowing that I could never catch up with, uh, the rest of the rest of the guys. Do you feel like you've caught up a little bit? At this point, yeah. At this point, I do. Even, even though, like, I know what it's like to be a little kid and have like rock and roll in my blood and in my bones, and and that to me isn't this innate thing that I, I definitely get. But I'll never know, you know, what it, what it's like to have to, to to have felt that since I was a little kid and have that that charge of just that that sense of that fullness that you would get from, you know, 
being satisfied by a, by a creative endeavor for that long. So the, the thing Rob didn't really go into detail there was when he stepped into that magic store because of uh, it was so hot outside in Baltimore and he felt guilty. He needed to buy something and he bought a trick that involved uh, a disappearing silk. And that night on stage with his band, Possum Dixon, a uh, someone broke a guitar string and he needed to fill some time and he had the trick in his pocket. And <laughs> so he said to the crowd, does anybody out there have a condom? And uh, yes, of course they did. And someone threw it up on stage and uh, using the same principle that he had seen making the silk disappear, he made the condom disappear and got a huge response from the crowd, as one might imagine, and sort of put that in the act from that point forward. He would find a time in every show to do that because uh, he liked the reaction and he enjoyed the magic. And when the band broke up, uh, it kind of made sense for him to, to go into magic. Not kid shows, apparently, but... but no. <laughs> But yes, yeah, it's interesting the path that people take to get where we are or they are. And to me, the both of these highlight something that I found fascinating, that if you start early, like as a kid in magic, you do end up with a lot of sort of preconceived ideas of what it is or what it could be, some baggage, which can be both good and bad. I'm not judging. I'm just saying coming to it late in life frees you a little bit to think about it in a way that maybe those of us who had it from our childhood uh, can never quite shake the, uh, you know, the preconceived notions that yeah. we have, uh, we've, we've acquired over that it's, amount it, of time. It's built into the foundation. Right, exactly. Yeah, and Morgan and West uh, have very strong opinions about exactly that when it comes to at what age is best to learn magic. And uh, they came to it late. Uh, they had some background in theater, but they were certainly well in their 20s before they started coming into magic. What were the benefits of coming in out that late? I genuinely think, and I think we would agree with me, I think magic is a terrible hobby for children. I think the performance of magic is a terrible yeah, no, yeah. Hobby for so not not learning trick, learning trick is fun, but as in kids trying to do magic is often dreadful. It, in the same way that performing music is often a terrible hobby for children, like th there is nothing wrong with the hobby of learning to play the violin. There is nothing wrong with the hobby of I like doing drama, so I go to stagecoach or I go to the drama club or, or, or that sort of thing. And there is nothing wrong with the hobby of I like doing card tricks or I like playing with coin magic, so I learn these things. They're all great yeah. things to do. But the performance itself is a completely separate thing. Well, oh, and also the thing with magic is that the skills you need to genuinely be good at magic are... I mean, it helps to have quite big hands, you know, for one, but generally is an aware, uh, good hand-eye coordination, which you genuinely don't have as a child. Your brain has not developed enough. Um, and it is a thing you learn over the first large chunk of years of your life and develops right through your adult life. And so eight-year-olds just don't have good hand-eye coordination. They learn things very quickly, but they don't naturally have it. And also a thing that takes years and years to learn, which is, awareness of the people you're talking to and an empathy for the people you're talking to and dealing with because a big part of magic is basically do the move when no one's looking and to do that you need to know when no one's looking which means you need to expand your worldview out of yourself and to everyone around you and that's something that kids are really and you know we 
both used to teach secondary school kids or high school kids, you know, we know that kids really struggle to, to see beyond literally their own reach. And, and so most magicians who have been doing magic since the age of six spent the first 10 or 15 years of their magic career learning stuff. And then the good ones then spent another 10 years unlearning all that stuff. And the bad ones didn't. And, it, and it also, when you're eight years old, you learn magic tricks by you read the script, you learn the script, you read the moves, you learn the moves, you do the moves in the script. And you, we've all seen kids do magic like, oh, and here I have a... Th- and they're just saying the lines and doing that. And that teaches magicians that the way of doing magic is to buy a thing and learn the secret, learn the words, and then do them together. And maybe you've read some advice that says, maybe put in a few jokes. Blah, blah, blah. But kids aren't taught the idea of, well, just take some stuff you know and begin by writing your own things. Like when we first started doing magic, it never occurred to us to not write our own scripts. We used to we used to like steal horrendously from other people as well. Like oh yeah, we we we'd, we'd rip off stuff. Mostly Darren. We'd we'd spend mostly a long Darren. time ripping off Darren in various ways, including sort of sitting in my room in university and watching the DVDs from Trick of the Mind and going, I wonder how that works. Well, you could do it this way and kind of reverse engineering various methods. But um, even then, we never stole his words. No. Because for us, it just it, it seemed so obvious. I mean, partly we were adults and we were doing a lot of amateur theatre. So we already were kind of people that wrote lines and wrote jokes and things like that. But it never even occurred to us that you would get a script with the thing and that's the script you'd perform. Very early in our careers, this was, must have been about 2010, 2011, we did an audition um, for a TV show called Help My Supply Teacher's Magic. Uh, the, the email that came with the audition said, and you need to prepare a version of Professor's Nightmare. And it didn't occur to us that there was a script for this attached. So we went away and we wrote two different versions because we were both auditioning, two different versions of Professor's Nightmare that were themed about two different things. And we turned up and we did them. And then um, it was Anthony Owen who was auditioning us because it was his thing. And he said, that was great, but um, did you not prepare the one that was attached, the script? And we were like, what? (laughs) <laughs> there was a script sorry what <laughs> hadn't even occurred to us hadn't, yeah. it, hadn't even occurred to us that they would just give us the words to say hey, yeah I, I think the biggest the only advantage the only true advantage of starting magic when you're eight years old is so that when you're 28 you get to say i've been doing magic for 20 years you've also got a head start on all the slides you do have a head start on practicing yeah. slides but again from a personal point of view i don't but i haven't practiced the slide for about eight years if, if I need something for a show, I'll go away and eventually learn it. But otherwise, I don't care. <laughs> really, in magic, you need about four moves. And anything else is just, you're just doing it to, to, to please yourself. Things, isn't it? It's the it's hobby side of things. And there's nothing things. wrong with that. I got into magic through juggling. And I am fully down with the idea of learning something just because it's fun to learn. But the idea that there are people out there who can do like 800 slides that I can't do doesn't bother me at all. As long as that pleases them... Yeah. That's perfect because it right. should be about doing what you want to do and doing things so that it pleases you. That that's what the that's why we do things, isn't it? That's why we do hobbies. That's a, a hobby is that purpose. We we don't do magic as a hobby anymore. We haven't done magic as a hobby for ten years, yeah. maybe more. And you'll see magicians online or whatever come to the conventions when we, when we can do that. Sort of asking how to become a better magician, and the best answer is usually you need to decide what you think a better magician looks like and try and do that. You know, that idea of uh, deciding what a better magician looks like and becoming that, I, 
really is kind of the heart and soul of their act. That's what it's all about. It's just getting better, getting better every single time. And, you know, really that quote uh, certainly applies to, you know, what what does a better magician look like? Try to do that. Uh, that really could apply to absolutely anything you're interested in doing with your life, whether it's artistically, financially, as a human being, as a, I mean, it's just, it's another one of those light bulb moments that it's just so concise that you can, you could just take it and go, yeah, I can just speed up time essentially by saying, this is somebody I admire and look up to. How can I uh, incorporate some of what they do or how they do it into my day to day to get where I want to go? It's just uh, this, among the many things that we have learned that along with the fact that magic and comedy share a fuel source uh, may be the most transformative for me as a performer and as a human being. Well, I'm, I'm glad we, we were able to share that with you. You know, very, it, nice. very kind. I think I mentioned this in past episodes, but that idea of uh, figure out what a better magician looks like and, and try to do that connects back with something our, our pal, uh, uh, business speaker Joe Calloway has said for years, you know, find something that works and then find out what's your version of that. What is your version of making that very thing happen? So now it's time to listen to the final chapter of uh, the ambitious card. And I, I think we're kind of trying to draw it out before we get to that. Cause we don't want to say goodbye to the ambitious card. I'm, I'm tearing up a little bit. Just yeah, it is that way, isn't it? Anyway, before uh, you jump into chapter 22, I see you got the pages in front of you. You're ready to go. Let me just recap what happened in the last chapter. Megan and Eli got out of the cave okay. Uh, they had to make their way down the cliff. They got back to the magic store to find out that Harry is fine, that Pete didn't kill Harry. But in fact, Harry pulled the rug out from under Pete and uh, is just fine. And Pete has gone off uh, with the police to uh, be arrested. And then the, it's kind of a sweet moment with uh, Harry and Eli, as Harry explains why finding dimes uh, gives him pleasure. That takes us right into chapter 22. The Ambitious Card, an Eli Marks mystery. Chapter 22. Okay, I asked you once and you didn't give me a straight answer, so I'm going to ask you again. Ask away, I said, although I can't guarantee an improved result. It was a cloudy, crisp day in late November, and Megan and I had decided to take a walk along the Minnehaha Parkway. After some charming, aimless strolling, we found ourselves seated on a wooden bench. She pointed at the object in front of us. What's the deal with that bunny? Megan asked. The bench was just a stone's throw from the giant rabbit statue. I have no idea, I said finally. Harry's intrigued with that rabbit as well, I added, although I don't exactly remember why. How's he doing? Harry? Harry's good, I think, I said, taking off my gloves and setting them on the bench next to me. I pulled off my wool cap as well, since it was starting to feel a little warmer. A little warmer for November, that is. He started talking about Aunt Alice more, which I think is a good sign. He's not exactly moving on, but he's moving ahead, if that makes sense. I think it does, Megan said, as she took off her own gloves. 
We had both bundled up for cold that apparently wasn't happening. Which reminds me, I said, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? She wrinkled her nose. Well, normally we go see Pete's family for Thanksgiving, but I don't think that's happening this year. Well, if you want, you could join us, I interjected, as offhandedly as I could. It's not a big deal. It's just Harry and me and my friend Nathan and that British writer Clive and whichever the Minneapolis mystics don't have a gig that day, which generally means all of them. Basically, it's everyone we know who doesn't have anywhere else to go. That sounds like fun. I did tell Franny that she and I might get together. Bring her along. The more the merrier. I think she'd like that, Megan said. She's almost back to normal health-wise. And who knows? There might be some sparks with Harry. Two psychics at his dining room table? I can pretty much guarantee that there will be sparks with Harry, I said. We both laughed. And then I felt a need to amend that thought. Although, actually, I'm not so sure that's the case now. It might have been true a month ago, but now I'm not so sure. He's mellowed in that area. And I think that's due in no small part to you. I picked up Megan's hand and held it. She leaned her head on my shoulder. But if Franny's looking to hook up with a guy her age, I can promise you that we'll have Plenty of options for her to choose from, I added. Speaking of hooking up, Megan said, sitting up straight and turning toward me. I meant to tell you, I ran into Nova. She and Boone got back together. And you'll never believe this. She's running Akashic Records. What happened to pretty boy Michael? Out on his ass. Turns out, Ariana didn't leave him squat. Nothing? Not a thing. So he wasn't even mentioned in the will? Oh, from what I heard, he was mentioned. He was mentioned at great length. Remember the language I used in the cave with the bats? Multiply that by ten. Wow! Ariana left it all to Nova. So she's running the store, and Boone is in charge of the record department. Megan sat back, and we continued to look at the rabbit. You didn't happen to find out, I asked finally, why Boom was at Ariana's that night, did you? Megan looked around to make sure no one was within listening distance. As it turns out, she said quietly, Nova confided in me that Ariana was one of the reasons she and Boom got back together again. Turns out he'd been taking private lessons from Ariana in order to learn how to please Nova the same way Ariana had. I mean, you know, sexually. Shut up, I said, my mouth dropping open in an almost comic reaction to this news. No, not like that, she said as she slapped my knee. They weren't doing it. She was giving him actual lessons with reading assignments and written tests and everything. Nova told me all about it. And get this, it was Boone's idea. He talked to Ariana, told her he really wanted things to work with Nova, and she took him on as a student to teach him her secrets. The night she died was supposed to be their fourth lesson. Well, good for Boone, I marveled. But now I can see why he didn't want to tell the cops the reason he was at her apartment. You men, Megan said, shaking her head. You'd rather rot in jail than admit that you're bad in bed. 
Hey, speaking of things we meant to tell each other, I said, not so subtly, changing the subject. I didn't tell you that I found the script for Nathan's act. She looked puzzled. I didn't know it was lost. It was, I said. I couldn't find it among all the stuff he left for me when he went out of town. All I could find was a sheet that said how long each bit was supposed to be, but no script. So I ended up doing Harry's act instead. And then when I went to pack up Nathan's gear, I found the script. It had been sitting in the bag the whole time. Although I'd swear it wasn't there before. Weird, huh? Spooky, Megan said, and then she added, But these things often have a deeper meaning. So you have to ask yourself, What would have been different if you'd found the script and done Nathan's act? I thought about it for a moment. Nothing, I guess, I said except that I would have been a lot less stressed out and I would have blown up a lot more balloons. Really, she said thoughtfully. So if you'd blown up more balloons, then you and I would have had less oxygen in the tank when we were in the cave? Oh, yeah, I said, a lot less. Nathan's act calls for a ton of balloons. I probably would have drained the tank. So, she said slowly, if you had found Nathan's script... You would have done Nathan's act, and then you and I would have died in the caves from lack of oxygen. Well, I said just as slowly, you're making a bit of a leap there. Not much of a leap, she said. These things always happen for a reason. I thought about this for a long moment. I could feel her looking at me while I thought. It felt like she was smiling at me. So let me see if I understand this, I said, turning to face her. You think some supernatural force hid Nathan's script for me so I wouldn't use up all the air in the tank? And this supernatural force did that so we'd have enough air to survive on when we were trapped in the cave? Is that what you're saying? Megan shrugged. Franny always says that the supernatural is much more powerful than the natural. That's why they call it Super. Franny says that, does she? I asked, looking up at the gray sky and trying to sort out all the thoughts in my head. Megan was staring at me, her eyes sparkling with laughter that the rest of her face wasn't willing to express yet. She does, Megan said. She also had a few choice thoughts about my future with you. Did she? I asked, moving closer. She did, Megan said. We were very close now. What did she say? I asked in a whisper. I'll tell you later, she whispered back. She kissed me. And as she did, right on cue, it finally began to snow. Oh, and there's the theme music for the end of the book. That's the little uh, theme that'll turn up at the end of every at the end of every Eli Marks book. It's not the same as the opening theme. It's a little sweeter thing. Anyway, um, I will say this because uh, people have asked about it. The character of Franny, who ends up with Harry uh, uh, in a relationship in future books, uh, was supposed to die in this book. She was. Did you just did you just tip something to? Uh, that, I that... think it's kind of obvious in the last chapter. Do you think? that that there's a little spark? Yes, I think I think so. I think it's obvious that there's something's going to happen. But I will say this. Uh, Franny was supposed to die. She was supposed to be the last victim of the killer. But she was such a fun character that just putting her in a coma for a little while uh, seemed to do the trick. Um, she's based on a woman both Jim and I used to work with uh, who's left us now. 
but is still with us in spirit because uh, how can you not love someone who is uh, at a corporate event in charge of making everybody happy and you approach her and say, how's it going? And having her turn to you and say in that gravelly voice, I hate people. <laughs> ah, she, God bless her soul. That's yes. She was just, she was. she's one of a kind. Anyway. Hey, let me just say this. I, I know that your life has been threatened. Should you ever decide to hurt uncle Harry yes. more than one reader has expressed a deep, deep love for Harry and yes. what might happen to you have, if you ever make the decision to hurt or, or kill, God forbid, Uncle Harry. Yes. I'm not talking about me now. I'm talking about actual readers of this series sending you emails that say, if you ever, if you ever. I, I believe in my heart that they would, they would be fine with Eli being killed as long as Harry survives. I agree. And I think Harry Harry would be fine with that too. Anyway, that brings us to the end of the ambitious card. We have uh, one more episode, episode 124, with a very special guest and kind of a special treat. And then we're going to launch into season two, where we listen to you read The Bullet Catch. That's a good one. Uh, yeah, actually, it's one of my favorites. And just like this last season, uh, we're going to have some incredible guests lined up, some of whom we've already talked to. Anybody jumping out at you, Jim? Uh, I really enjoyed our time with uh, Harrison Greenbaum. Uh, that was a delight. Uh, I, I enjoyed Joshua Jay was a fun interview. What a bright, insightful uh, yeah. David Parr, who's a dear, dear friend of mine. I've known him for, uh, you know, 30 plus years. So talking with David, who's super bright and insightful himself. Yep. That was great. How about you? Anybody's? You know, there's so many people that I'm thrilled said yes. Kayla Drescher, who runs the Shazam podcast. Kayla's just terrific. And she and Carissa, when they started that podcast, brought a perspective to me that I needed in writing the books that I wouldn't have gotten elsewhere. Nice. Uh, we got to talk to Stan Allen, who uh, is there a nicer guy in the world? I don't know. Jonathan Lovett, John Armstrong. Anyway, there's a lot of really great people coming up, including kind of a little left turn. We're going to open that season with Dennis Palumbo who is a mystery writer and a uh, psychotherapist and uh, co-author of My Favorite Year. So yeah, that's that's all going to happen. Yeah, That's all going to happen then. But before then, we have uh, episode 124 with our special surprise guest and a fun little reading happening. Other than that, I think that kind of wraps us up for this week. Wow. It's a, not just this week, this book almost. So uh, one more ex, uh, extra episode, but the book itself is done. Which We're done. It's a milestone. That's a milestone, buddy. Nicely yes. done. You well, did all you. the heavy lifting. Really just great stuff. And if you are listening to the show, folks, and you have yet to subscribe to our podcast, uh, I urge you to do that politely. But it would be wonderful to have you as a subscriber. And um, I know that if you also review us, that really does help us as well. So if you're enjoying this and you're looking forward to season two, subscribe and, and, and say some nice things in a review. And other people then will have a chance to enjoy this like you are right now. That would be so nice. So fantastic. Until next time then, Jim, you take care and we'll see you on the other side. I'll see you. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham, produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. 
www.thepowerofpositivity.com. And thanks for listening. Thank you.